Hello, Oldest Stories listeners. Today, I have a special bonus episode for you, part of a collaboration with a number of YouTubers and podcasters that will actually jump a little bit forward in our story, though the original versions of this myth likely have their origins sometime between 2000 and 1600 BCE. Still, I had the opportunity to work with a number of really talented and creative people to each contribute part of the world's stock of serpent-related myths. Now, this episode can be enjoyed on its own, and after we finish with Babylon, it will slot quite neatly into the Anatolian section that will follow. But, you can also check out the videos linked in the show notes to follow the thread of a unique and curious mythological beast, the Fearsome Serpent, as it's manifested in many forms throughout the ages. I definitely recommend that you at least scroll through and see if any catch your eye, like Mythos and Logos discussing the biblical Leviathan, Athena Productions' episode on the Aztec Quetzalcoatl, or any of the other fantastic videos that each bring a piece of the puzzle to this fascinating aspect of our shared human culture. And if you like what you see over there, don't be afraid to like and subscribe to their stuff as well. After all, I wouldn't have partnered up with them if I didn't like their stuff. With that said, there will still be a regular episode coming out on Wednesday, so if you want to focus exclusively on the historical narrative, it will still be there at the regular time. And if you're coming from one of those other YouTubers, welcome to The Oldest Stories. I hope you enjoy the show. These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. There exists throughout many cultures a myth of slaying a great serpent, which in some later versions evolved into the many, many tales of dragon slaying. But as far as we can tell, the oldest such tale which survives, which is itself almost certainly not the oldest of the genre ever told, comes from central Anatolia, and was probably first written down under the reign of the first Hittite king, Hattushili I. Hittite religion and culture was characterized by an extreme level of openness and diversity, to such a degree that it's sometimes hard to separate out what parts of their mythology are Hittite and what parts originated from the cultures that would influence them. At the same time, the syncretizing impulse that so many other ancient and classical civilizations possessed seems to have been almost completely absent from Hittite culture, at least for the vast majority of their history. The matter is so extreme that neighboring cities would have temples to identical storm gods, but when the Hittites conquered both, rather than recognizing that they were both worshipping eh, basically the same guy, they would instead enshrine the two gods as the storm god of the first city and the storm god of the second city, along with dozens of other captive and nearly identical storm gods. We will have occasion to look at this trend more closely in future episodes, but for now what's important to take away from this is that, in the Hittite mind, all properly enshrined gods were valid and unique, and in much the same way, all separate versions of their tales were valid. Which gets us to our tale today, sometimes called the myth of Ilyanka. When we looked at the Epic of Gilgamesh, we noticed how there were multiple versions of the story, since it was written down many times over the centuries, and seems to have drifted a bit. However, 
For the myth of Ilyanka, what we have are two surviving accounts that were written down relatively close in time and space to each other, each preserving the oral accounts of two different traditions with two very different stories. The fundamentals are the same, the storm god fights the serpent and loses, then with the help of the mortal man he's able to defeat the serpent, but the details will differ wildly. Now, it's usually my preference to read to you directly from the ancient texts, but the two Ilyanka tales are unusually terse, even for ancient cuneiform, and their terseness reminds us that what was written down was probably just notes for a priest, scribe, or performer to refer to when transmitting the tale orally to an audience. And so, in the spirit of this ancient tradition, this is the Hittite Ilyanka tale with a bit of embellishment. Our setting is the town of Kishkalusha, one of many Hattian towns in central Anatolia. The time is now, or at least this story is typically told at a particular time of year, the Peruli Festival, celebrated sometime in the spring of each year. And this story is retold by priests and reenacted by theater troops along the festival route as part of the festivities. But though the coming of spring is typically a time for the harshness of winter to give way to the gentler growing season, for the mighty storm god of the region of Nerik, there is no peace. Blood drips down his face, and his strength is sapped by the venom coursing through his body. His mighty muscles, strong as fifty oxen, burn with fatigue. His quiver of lightning bolts is nearly empty. His blessed sacred axe may as well be a mace, so dull has its edge been worn. But his foe is relentless. The serpent he battles is as strong now as it was at the beginning of their long battle, twisty and powerful muscles wrestling against the mighty storm god. They are entwined like lovers, but this is the furious passion of manly battle, a conflict between gods with stakes higher than mortals can know. And as we glimpse their battle through our tale, we can see clearly that it is the mighty storm god, whose gentle winds protect this land and who sanctifies our kings, that's on the losing end. In the Hittite language, the foe is called Ilyanka, but though this word simply means snake, used for the common animal you might find in any field, this particular snake must have been mighty indeed, for finally, he triumphs over the mighty storm god and throws him on the ground in the shame of defeat. The greatest of gods, now diminished in his humiliation, withdraws from the battlefield and cedes the natural order itself to the slithering god-beast. What happens to the world without the storm god's protection? The people celebrating Peruli and hearing this tale would have known. They had just seen it, in every child that went hungry during the lean winter months, and in every elderly person taken by the bitter chill. Life itself retreats under the biting winds of the Anatolian highlands in wintertime. Though every sensible worshipper feared the wrath of the storm god, nothing could be more terrifying than his absence, even partially during a part of the year. But the storm god had no intention of allowing this humiliation to stand. He has the genius of a god, and his brilliant mind soon devised a plan. Setting out an invitation to all the gods, he called upon his daughter Inara to prepare a great feast. 
wine, beer, and wallahi liquor were to overflow from every cup, and the food would be, with the magic of the gods, literally endless. With the food and entertainment all prepared, the storm god's daughter had one more task to get ready for the feast. She traveled to a town called Ziggurata, though the significance of this particular location has been lost to the ages. There, she found what she was looking for, a mortal champion named Hupasha. This name, too, has fallen to obscurity outside of this particular legend, though he must have been a hero of some renown for the gods to seek him out like this. Inara explains her plan to the mortal while he nods, only half-listening with a leering smirk on his face. When she finishes, she asks, or more like commands, that he join her. Hupasha's response encapsulates his character. If I may sleep with you, then I will come and perform whatever your heart desires. The daughter of the mightiest of gods sighed, but had little choice in the matter. In any case, we can assume that so storied a hero as Hupasha was both attractive and skillful in bed. They got out of bed shortly before the feast was due to start, and as Inara put her clothes back on in readiness for the party, Hupasha hid himself at the back of the party. In her finest dress, Inara called out to the serpent in particular, shouting down the hole in which he made his den, announcing the beginning of a great party. The serpent and his entire slithering brood slid their way across the ground to the feast, and in the company of all the gods they ate and drank, and drank, and drank, and drank. When they were so drunk that no matter how they staggered, they couldn't find their way back to their hole, the trap was sprung. Hupashia leapt out from behind the inebriated snake with a rope and tied him down, and with a single decisive swing from his divine axe, the storm god appeared from the crowd and took the head off the bound foe. Spilled blood commingled freely with spilled wine upon the floor, and the gods high and low cheered this execution. With this death and the great toast to the storm god of Nerik, the first Peruli festival was celebrated in the town of Kishkalusha. There are many storm gods in many cities, but here the storm god of Nerik revealed his name, Zaliyanu, and he was hailed as the first among the gods of Nerik. It is Zaliyanu who provides rain for Nerik, and he who causes the thick grain to grow. It's in praise of Zaliyanu that the Gudu priest Kella originally wrote the tablet which still survives to this day, affixing his own name and that of his scribes Pi-Hazidi and Walwazidi to the tale, so that their own names may survive in perpetuity along with their mighty god. But what of Hupasha, the mortal? It may seem like he completed his bargain, in which he received a moment of passion in exchange for assistance in the great battle. However, though this portion of the text is badly broken, and so much surrounding his motivations and his fate are unclear, we know for sure that fate and the storm god's daughter were not done with the champion yet. Now, perhaps Inara was swept off her feet by the mortal, or, perhaps more likely, she now owed a societal obligation to marry the man whom she'd slept with. 
Either way, she constructed a mighty fortress upon a rocky outcropping, the sort of structure that would have stood at the top of the great cities like Hattusha, and later in history like the great Acropolis of Athens. This was Inara's house, and the mythic establishment of the city of Taruka, which we actually can place on a map as somewhat north of Hattusha, though the town itself is largely unremarkable. As was custom in many native Anatolian communities, it was the duty of the husband to move in with the wife's family, and so Hupatia found himself married and in a new home. But though his new wife tried to keep Hupatia occupied and happy, a melancholy had settled over him. She worried about this, but the business of the gods called her away after some time together, and she warned him not to look out the windows while she was gone. And to be fair to Hupatia, he knew what he would see if he looked out the window, and attempted for as long as he could to remain obedient to his divine wife's command. After twenty days alone in the castle, however, he finally looked outside. And there, just as he expected, he saw his wife and children wailing and pleading for him to come home. You see, it seems Hupatia had already been married when he decided to dally with the goddess, and like many men who prioritized their fifteen seconds of pleasure, he was unprepared for and regretted the long-term responsibilities that followed. When Inara returned, Hupashi was weeping openly, and the two had a furious argument. The outcome is sadly lost, but if you like stories to have happy endings, you're free to believe that Inara came to realize she was standing in the way of true love and allowed him to return home, where Hupashi retired from adventuring and lived a quiet family life ever after. Or, you can follow the people who actually read Hittite, some of whom believe that the surviving fragments probably indicate that Inara killed Hupatia in her rage. This would seem to be the end of the myth of Ilyanka and the Peruli festival. The snake has been slain, but in the back of our minds, we know that serpents have a funny habit of coming back year after year. This is a trope found in many cultures, and likely stems from the fact that a snake shedding its skin seems in its own way like a tiny form of immortality, regaining youth by sloughing off old age. Though it isn't explicitly part of the myth, we all know that the battle with Ilyanka will repeat next winter, and we can all pray to the storm god that he will have the strength to prevail once again next spring. But in fact, this isn't the end of the Ilyanka myth, not even in the limited sense of being done for this particular Peruli festival. The Gudu priest Kela and his scribes recorded not one, but two versions of the legend of the storm god's victory over the serpent. While many of the core elements remain in place, we will see that the tales are different enough to defy easy synthesis. And yet, the fact that both were placed on an official record tablet by a mid-rank priest during the middle of the Hittite New Kingdom, recording almost certainly a much older tradition that may well predate Hammurabi's Babylon, tells us that the Anatolians in general were quite comfortable with a wide variety in their religious traditions. 
We can't tell where this other version comes from, though the diction and style prove that it's quite clearly different. The tradition of the second tale records no specific place names or precise details that would allow us to pin it anywhere on a map. But it is clearly from another part of the Hattian lands, and as it opens, we see clearly that it's part of the same broad tradition that birthed the first story. Because as we open our next tale, we see again that the storm god is on the back foot in his furious battle with the serpent Ilyanka. But in this battle, the mighty and venerable storm god does not get away quite as cleanly as the first time. Pinned to the ground, broken by the fight, the storm god is helpless beneath the victor. The serpent rips out the storm god's eyes, a not uncommon tactic for controlling conquered peoples in the later Hittite Empire that may have its roots here in the natives of Anatolia. A blinded slave can be put to work pushing a grinding wheel for the rest of his life without so much risk of him ever successfully escaping, and blinding in general becomes a symbol of total defeat and submission. But the serpent is not finished with a mere symbol of the storm god's total defeat. He also rips out the still-beating heart from the god's chest, an even more potent way of ensuring that the enemy would never be returning to haunt you. In this tale, the storm god is in no mood for a party after being left for dead upon the battlefield. However, blind and disheartened, he still remains alive, somehow and is able to crawl back home, though only as a shadow of the god he was. He knew that there would be no quick recovery from this, but though his body was broken, his mind was as sharp as ever, and he knew that what he needed to defeat the serpent was a strong and attractive son. In this myth, the local storm god of whatever forgotten locality birthed this legend was a bachelor at the time of the great battle. However, Thrown from the heights of his splendor, there were no women left who would consider him eligible, and he was able to marry only the mortal daughter of the poorest of men. They conceived a child in the usual way, and this son grew up to be a strong and attractive young man. The storm god took his son to the side one day and, reminding him of his duty, sent him to go flirt with the daughter of Ilyanka the serpent. Was she a snake girl, the sort you find on the weird internet fetish websites? I don't know. The source fails to elaborate on the subject. But whatever she was, the son of the storm god is able to seduce her, and soon they marry. Now, Anatolian marriage customs differ wildly from place to place, part of the diverse patchwork of the region. But here we see another example of a way a man can marry into his wife's family, this time in exchange for a sort of reverse bride price, where the father of the bride is obligated to provide the groom with a ritual gift offering. Honestly, I can't even imagine how the subsequent conversation between the son of the storm god, hiding his identity of course, and Ilyanka himself went after this. I'm a pretty low confrontation kind of person, and the idea of demanding my father-in-law's greatest war trophies as a bride price is far more ballsy than anything I'm capable of. But not only was the storm god's son able to ask this, 
He was either demanding enough or convincing enough to get the eyes and heart of the storm god handed over at the height of the snake wedding ceremony. It was a joyous occasion and fun was had by all, but as soon as it had ended, the son, loyal to his father, returned the eyes and heart to the storm god. This whole marriage had been a sham to accomplish this feat, and the storm god rose up, again sightened and heartened, ready to do battle once again. With renewed vigor and twenty years of preparing for the rematch, the storm god hurled himself at Ilyanka the serpent, and this time he soon got the upper hand. But with this second battle, we get the sense that this is no mere duel, but a full-on battle in which both sides are marshalling forces of their families and retainers, though of course the great champions are whirlwinds of death exchanging furious blows in the middle of the battlefield. The storm god is triumphing over the serpent, but not quickly and not without effort, until in one moment the serpent's neck is open for a clean blow from the storm god's mighty axe. But when the mightiest of gods brings the strike home, he's blocked from an unexpected source. The storm god's own son catches the killing blow with his own weapon. The look of confusion is obvious in a flash of the storm god's eyes, but his son does not waver. Include me with them. Have no pity on me. His son, once a traitor, is now twice a traitor, betraying first his marriage and now his father. His son, once loyal, is now twice loyal, first to his father and now to his marriage. But on the battlefield, there is no morality, only victory and defeat. And pulling back for an even greater swing, the storm god bisected both his son and the serpent in a single mighty blow. Storm god had won his victory. Okay, you can pause the show here if you need to take a moment to process all that. This is one story, and at the same time, it's two stories. And even though it's obviously an example of the famous trope of a hero slaying a dragon or a great serpent, it is, in its own way, something different. Something that tells us quite a lot about the Hittite mindset and about the sorts of intellectual ideas that are flowing around the entire Near East around this time. Fundamentally, we can summarize both of these tales rather simply. Storm God, who represents a major force of nature and especially weather, is defeated by Ilyanka, the serpent antagonist. In order to win ultimate victory, Storm God relies on a mortal to engage in a severe social breach as part of a plan to deceive the snake and win an advantage. Ultimately, the Storm God claims victory, but the mortal who had so badly breached social norms is also punished. This tale, in all its variations, likely entertained ancient audiences for centuries, but that was never its primary purpose, and to really understand what's going on here, we need to look deeper into the context of the story. The very first line of the original document informs us what the purpose of this story is. It reads, This is the text of the Peruli Festival, for the celebration of the storm god of heaven as told by Kella, the Gudu priest of the storm god of Narek. 
Already we've seen that there are a confusing multiplicity of storm gods, a matter which will be discussed in more depth in a future episode devoted to the Anatolian gods. But for now, you can think of it as a god more or less like the Greek Zeus, complete with lightning bolt, bull emblem, and most importantly, control over storms and weather. He's generally taken as a supreme being among the Anatolian pantheon, and the fact that he isn't triumphant in the very first battle may well have been quite surprising and possibly even distressing for those who hadn't heard the tale before. Indeed, the fact that such an august deity proves unable to triumph without trickery and mortal assistance is one of the core puzzles of this myth. This may have something to do with his antagonist, the serpent Ilyanka. As mentioned before, we often take Ilyanka as a proper name when discussing this tale, but it means nothing more than common snake, in fact being made up of two Proto-Indo-European roots which both carry the meaning of snake. But while the words this text is written in are of an Indo-European language, the tale itself almost certainly dates back to the Hattians, native to central Anatolia, and thus many of the mythic cues we can see in the character of the snake are drawn from a stock of cultural ideas that are shared in common with many Mesopotamian myths this show has already encountered. Snakes appear at the very beginning of the written record, and mentions of them can be found throughout the cuneiform archives, both directly and as literary references. Poetically, we see them in much the same way our own culture uses them. Dumazid, attempting to escape the doom coming for him, begs for the agility of a snake, and in some versions actually becomes a snake to slither away from his fate. In Inanna's Cursing of the Ebon Mountain, she invokes a slithering snake metaphorically as something low and base, cursing Ebbet to slither among the ground rather than to tower above her. The highly poetic tale of Lugalbanda invokes snakes viscerally, comparing the seizures of the ill hero to a snake dragged by its head with a reed. But while it isn't too hard to find shallow poeticisms livening up a tale, Mesopotamian literature is too refined to simply leave it there. Now, snakes naturally can be hazardous, but in recognizing this, the very first scribes of Sumer decided that these animals weren't merely dangerous. They were actively evil, and evil in a very particular way. Snakes in the oldest tales exist in opposition to the natural order. Rebels and defilers in a culture that would find our modern idolization of rebellion repellent. When Inanna was gifted a sacred tree, a snake was one of the things that came to defile it, and so strong was this snake's rejection of the natural order that its descriptive epithet was the snake immune to incantations. Even the gods could not influence the underground beast nesting in its roots. And so, in this tale, the job fell to mighty Gilgamesh, a mortal hero, to slay the serpent. But there are plenty of other snakes that the gods can kill, such as the various horned, multi-headed, and giant serpents claimed in the record of the divine hero Ninurta's many triumphs. Though, sadly, these are only known through art and passing mentions. The actual stories have been lost. As time passed from the early dynastic to the Akkadian and Ur-3 periods, many of these themes continue in literature. 
Snakes can be seen neutrally, in a strictly descriptive or poetic sense, such as when Gudea, the famous sculptor king of Lagash, compares his fierceness to that of a snake. When rebels strike against him, like a snake his poisonous anger spews forth. But to call someone a snake can, in another context, have all the same venom we might use today. Both the famous Curse of Agada and the self-congratulatory victory of Utuhengel, together discussing the fall of the Akkadian Empire and subsequent revitalization of the Sumerian people, describe the great enemy of civilization in the same terms, as the Snake of the Mountains. The ferocious barbarian Gutians were, in the minds of Sumerian and Akkadian alike, best described by the low and loathsome beast when they pulled civilization down around them and brought the first dark age of human history since the invention of writing. And as Mesopotamian culture was spread both by the earliest empires of Akkad and Ur, and the great merchant ventures of early Assyria, we can only assume that the surrounding peoples were adopting many Mesopotamian symbols, concepts, and attitudes as they took up the cuneiform writing system, the Eduba educational system, and aspects of the Akkadian economic and governing systems. We can see these ideas evolving and taking on nuance as we transition into the Middle Bronze Age. The poetic references never really stop, with all the flourish visible in older periods, but here the older notions of snake as symbol of opposition evolve in some very interesting ways. Most famously, the beginning of the Babylonian domination of Mesopotamia is the period when we see the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth, appear in writing for the first time. Now, this show actually has a whole episode about that myth in full, but one of the many things I glossed over for the sake of time and narrative flow was the nature of Tiamat, the great mother goddess. It seems that she was a giant snake. Tiamat's serpentine nature actually explains a lot about the flow of the story. For example, before the world was created, the whole War of the Gods actually occurred inside Tiamat herself. Snakes can, after all, eat massive mice, and unlike most animals, you can actually see the prey progressing through the snake's body. Scale that up, and you can sort of intuitively see quite a lot happening inside the lengthy belly of a massive serpent. Of course, Tiamat is also a character interacting physically within the world as well, so you can't take it too literally without waving your hand a bit and citing the mysteries of the gods. But then there's the mystery of the snake being present as literally one of the first two things in existence, born without apparent or knowable cause. Or at least, this is a mystery to us, but for the ancients, Snakes were a powerful inherent force of life, believed in some cultures to be ageless. Snakes are fascinating. If you live in the woods, you can often find husks where a snake has discarded its old body and emerged young again. Modern science will tell you that this is just a process that affects the skin, but for the ancients, this was one of their many unnatural magics. Not only can they live forever, but there are nothing but mouths on bodies. Mouths that can unhinge to a distressing size if you aren't used to it. And as an added bonus, 
When you look around the natural world for symbols of fertility, of which male genitalia was considered among the most powerful, you will find that male snakes are endowed with not one, but two of the penetrating organs. And of course, the entire snake, sometimes spitting whitish liquid, is itself phallic. The end result is a beast that, symbolically speaking, encompasses life as a fertility symbol, death as a feared and unnatural predator, and the rebirth cycle as it sheds its skin. In the highly symbolic world of ancient polytheism, it's perhaps no surprise to see the snake in such high positions as creator of the universe and challenger to the highest of gods. But mighty Tiamat, slain dragon mother of the earth, wasn't just a one-time threat. Like the undying snake, part of the Babylonian New Year's festival Akitu, which took place in the spring, was a return battle on Tiamat's part, in which Marduk would be forced to again slay the serpent to ensure the balance of the cosmic order for another year. The similarities are obvious enough that plenty of scholars had wondered whether the slaying of Ilyanka at the Peruli festival is a direct descendant of this Babylonian ritual. Personally, however, I'm skeptical of a direct lineage. Rather, I suspect that the common ideas of this incredibly powerful symbol of the snake manifested in similar ways across cultures with similar ideas. But of course, there is a major difference between Marduk's slaying of Tiamat and the storm god's slaying of Ilyanka. Marduk won, and his victory was never really in doubt. Storm God, however, not only loses in the straight fight, but never actually redeems himself by winning on his own merits. This is where we get to the third and fourth major players of the Ilyanka myth, the mortal assistant and his sexual partner. In both stories, the mortal is induced into a major social transgression. In the first version, the assistant is the hero Hupasha, perhaps an already established hero from other popular stories. He appears to us full of swagger and hubris, demanding to sleep with the storm god's own divine daughter. The lack of details prevents us from knowing exactly what the storm god's daughter's opinion on the matter was, but honestly, given the misogyny of most Bronze Age cultures, her opinion in the matter was likely unimportant. This is, after all, the same culture in which opportunities for rape and slave concubines was an explicit part of the military compensation package. The real problem with this part, as the contemporary audience would have seen it, was the sheer hubris of shacking up with a woman so far above one's own station, especially considered that he was already married. But the real transgression which, though partaken of by the storm god Inora and Hupasha, seems to have only really fallen on the last mortal member of the conspiracy, was the violation of hospitality laws. Storm god invited the serpent into his own home and offered him food and drink. The sacredness of the obligations owed by host to guest are so powerful and universal that they would persist across a wide swath of cultures for hundreds and thousands of years. But despite this, Hupasha, on Inara and the Storm God's orders, took advantage of these laws to catch Ilyanka unawares and bind him down so that the Storm God could take the final swing. This is a deeply immoral act, 
for which the storm god is celebrated and returned to his lofty position in the heavens. In the other version, things are no better. The storm god births a mortal son with the explicit purpose of seducing the serpent's daughter. The institution of the dowry is a sacred and solemn custom throughout the ancient Near East, and in many other global cultures as well. Pragmatically, it's meant for the protection of husband and wife should the marriage fall apart, and mishandling of a dowry is a serious crime that puts the junior partner, typically the wife, in actual risk of starving to death and makes her completely dependent on her husband. Perhaps more importantly, in the contractual marriages of the ancient Near East, the dowry is what sacralizes a marriage just as much as the consummation and rituals. To turn a ritual of binding two families into an opportunity for war between them is crass. To turn a sacred institution into an elaborate heist is nothing short of blasphemy. We really have to feel for the storm god's son here, literally born into an impossible situation. Loyalty to his father requires heinous deeds, and once they're completed, his new loyalties see him in active rebellion against his father. Perhaps it was to escape this situation and the shame of his evil that he called out to his own father on the battlefield and goaded him into filicide. However we judge the son's betrayals and loyalties, surely his father also bears some portion of the responsibility for it all. And yet here too, the only thing that matters is that the storm god wins, even cutting down his own son to do it. The people of the Near East were deeply pragmatic. They simply don't seem to have written too much philosophy as we would understand it, and when they did, it tended towards very practical advice on how to live and manage your life under the gods. They clearly understood ethics, even if we and they would disagree on more than a few of the finer points, and clearly thought that living a moral life was a valuable, desirable thing. But they lived in a world far harsher than we can even hope to understand nowadays. Even subsistence farmers of the modern era don't live under quite the same conditions, since in most parts of the world there's at least some nominal authority, no matter how ineffective and tyrannical. In the Near East of the Bronze Age, territorial empires were the exception rather than the rule. An attack could come from any direction in any year. You fought your neighbors to keep them from fighting you, and you took their women, slaves, and possessions because yours were going to be taken in turn. And that's assuming you even had the crops and production surplus required to survive and thrive as you watched communities around you starve or burn for no reason other than the random decision of weather and fate. What mattered was simply living that daily victory against death that we all wake up praying for. Higher ideals could be discussed and considered and even admired, but those who lacked a certain degree of both pragmatism and good fortune simply died out. The storm god is our protector. The snake kills people and defies the natural order. We know that the rebels, the villains, the predators, and the black magicians are powerful. We see that every day, and it's perhaps no surprise that even the greatest can be taken down by such perfidy. But in the Peruli Festival, and in the changing of seasons, 
The fallen god needs a human to help him get back up again. As the springtime turns, he will need human labor to grow the crops and provide offerings. He will need human warriors to win the wars of the next campaign season to expand his glory. And in his battle against the great serpent, he needs a human to cooperate with the god, even staining your soul with black sins that will invite severest retribution, in order that, at the end of the day, Storm God and the proper order of the world can again stand victorious. The enemy is a snake, and like snakes they will always return. But humans know that for us, and possibly for the gods as well, death comes in the year that you are too proud or too weak to do what's necessary to stay alive. And at the end of it, the storm god can celebrate, and the world can celebrate with him, because death has been staved off for another year. This fairly short pair of texts, with only some 36 surviving lines, has far more in it than I have the intention of pulling out all at once. But nearly all of the cultural attitudes expressed here, from the symbolism of the snake to the profound pragmatism, are the common inheritance of all the successors of Sumer, from Babylon to Anatolia and even beyond. There is much more to be read into it specifically from the Hittite perspective, but I'll be saving more of that for some other time and some of the other Hittite myths when we get to that after the fall of Babylon. For now, though, this is where I will leave off our special episode on the slaying of the great serpent, Ilyanka. For those just joining the show, I hope you've enjoyed it and invite you to check out the back catalog of both history and myth-related episodes. Also, this show is available on YouTube, as well as nearly any podcast app you care to listen to. For those who are regular listeners, The Tale of Hammurabi will continue on Wednesday at the usual time, or late Tuesday for those in U.S. time zones. We will be looking at some of the more invisible parts of old Babylonian society, the women and the slaves, as we start to wrap up the Mighty King's career. And while you wait, check out the show description for some links to other great shows. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, Ilyanka is only one of many serpent myths around the world. And today's episode is only one of many puzzle pieces connecting a common human inheritance together. The Mythology Multiverse Serpent Project includes looks into the biblical Leviathan, Medusa, Quetzalcoatl, Python, and the natural history of dragons, among others, all produced by some fantastic fellas. So check them out if you have a chance, but for now, thank you for listening.